0: Hello, Ratchet Book Club listeners. Before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the legal right to have a safe and legal abortion. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. This decision can also lead to the loss of other rights. To learn more about what you can do to help, go to podvoices.help. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Ratchet Book Club where we read hood classics and good classics. I'm Derek. 916 633 1537 Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com. Ratchet Book Club on Twitter, Ratchet Book Club on Facebook. Chapter 78. (laughs) I'm laughing because this book reminds me so much of one of the greatest comics where everybody just, you're waiting. Like, how does this all fit? How does this all work? How does this all come together? And then you get to that moment and it's just. Chapter 78. Late Tuesday afternoon in Bright Beach, as a darker blue and iridescent tide rolled across the sky, seagulls rode towards their safe harbors. And on the land below, shadows that had been upright at work all day now stretched out, recumbent, preparing for the night. From San Francisco south to Orange County Airport on a crowded commuter flight, then farther south along the coast by rental car, Paul Damascus brought Grace, Celestina, and Angel to the Lampion House. Before we go to my place, there's someone I very much want you to meet. She's not expecting us, but I'm sure it'll be okay. With a smudge of flour on one cheek, wiping her hands on a red and white checkered dish towel, Agnes answered the door. Saw a car in the driveway and said, Paul, you're not walking? Couldn't carry these three ladies, he said. Svelte as, as they are, they still weigh more than a backpack. Quick introductions were made in the process of moving from the porch to the foyer, and Agnes said, come on back to the kitchen. I'm baking pies. The rich aromas on the air would have thwarted the will of the most devout monks on a fast of penitence. Grace said, what? Is that wonderful smell. It ain't coconut cake, I'll tell you that much. Peach raisin walnut pies, Agnes said, with a regular bottom crust and a chocolate crackle top crust. This is the devil's workshop, Celestina declared. In the kitchen, Barty sat at the table, and Paul's heart pinched at the sight of the boy in padded eye patches. You must be Barty, Grace said. I've heard all about you. Sit down, sit down, Agnes urged. I can offer coffee now and pie in a little bit. Celestina had a delayed reaction to Barty's name. An odd look came over her. Barty? Short for... Bartholomew? That's me, Barty said. To her mother, Celestina said, What did you mean when you said you heard all about Barty here? Paul told us the night he first came to the parsonage, about Agnes here, and, and about what had happened to Barty, and all about his late wife, Perry. I feel like I know Bright Beach already. Then you have a big advantage, and you'll have to tell us all about yourselves, Agnes said. I'll get the coffee brewing, unless you'd like to help. Grace and Celestina fell at once into the rhythm of the kitchen work, not only brewing the coffee, but also helping Agnes with the pies. Six captain's chairs encircled the big round table, one for everybody, including Agnes, but only Paul and Barty stayed seated. Fascinated by this strange new realm, Angel returned to her chair periodically, between expirations, to sip apple juice and to reveal her latest discoveries. They got yellow shelf paper. They got potatoes in a drawer. They got four kinds of pickles in a the refrigerator. They got a toaster under a sock with pictures of birds on it. It's not a sock, Barty explained. It's a cozy. A what? Angel asked. A toaster cozy. Why does it have birds on it? Do birds like toast? Sure they do, Barty said, but I think Maria embroidered the birds just because they were pretty. Do you have a goat? I hope not, Barty said. Me too, Angel said, and then she went exploring again. Agnes, Celestina, and Grace were soon working together with a harmony that was like kitchen poetry. Paul had noticed that most women seemed to like or dislike each other within a minute of their first encounter, and when they found one another companionable, they were as open and easy as their first meeting as though they were friends of long duration. Within half an hour, these three sounded as if they were of one age, inseparable since childhood. He had not seen Grace or Celestina free of despair since the reverend's murder but here they were able for the first time to veil their anguish in the bustle of baking and the pleasure of making a new friend. Nice, Barty said, as though reading Paul's mind. Yeah, nice, he agreed. He closed his eyes to know the kitchen as Barty knew it. The fine aromas, the musical clink of spoons, the tinny rattle of pans, the liquid swish of a stirring whisk, the heat from the ovens, the women's voices, Gradually, denying himself sight, he was aware of his other senses sharpening. Nice, too. Nice, too, Paul said, but opened his eyes. Angel returned to the table for apple juice and to announce, They got a cookie jar, Jesus. I I have a, a cookie jar. It's, it's a night. We've had it since, like, the kids were little. Hold on. I don't know why I said hold on. It's not like y'all are sitting here with me. But I feel like you are, you know? But y'all don't know when I go to other rooms to get stuff. Anyway, I have a cookie jar. And it is a knight um, with a sword and a shield. And the shield says, Cookie Knight. And you put the cookies into its neck. And when you pull back the neck, when you lift the neck up to get the cookies out of the cookie jar, the sword raises up like to defend the cookies. And the knight says... The kids used to love this thing. And that's why I hold on to it. Because of the memories that it brings to me when I think about them laughing just opening the jar open over and over again. It wasn't like there were ever any cookies in it. Because they would eat the cookies down there immediately and then keep giggling as the cookie jars got opened. Sometimes you keep something and it doesn't have meaning to anybody else but to your memories. And you don't... you, You can go years down the road and you want to remember like I don't know why I hold on to that old thing but then when you hold on to that old thing your memories sing they don't quite focus on what happened to cause that joy they just bring joy at that point joy just comes from being in the realm of where that thing caused joy and that I understand hoarders I don't understand it. I mean, I wouldn't do it, but I understand it. Maria brought that from Mexico, Barty said. She thought it was pretty funny. So do I. It's a hoot. Mom says it isn't really blasphemous because it wasn't meant to be by the people who made it, and because Jesus will want you to have cookies, and besides, it reminds us to be thankful for all the good things we get. Your mother's wise, Paul said. More than all the owls in the world, the boy agreed. Why are you wearing cozies on your eyes? Angel asked. Barty laughed. (laughs) They're not cozies. Well, they aren't socks. They're eye patches, Barty explained. I'm blind. Angel peered closely, suspiciously at the patches. Really? I've been blind 15 days. Why? Barty shrugged. Something new to do. These kids were the same age. Yet listening to them was akin to hearing Angel do her charming stick with an adult who had a lot of patience, a sense of humor, and an awareness of generational ironies. What's that on the table? Angel asked. Putting one hand on the object to which she referred, Barty said, Mom and I were listening to a book when you got here. This is a talking book. Books talk? Angel asked with a note of wonder. They do if you're as blind as a stone, and if you know where to get them. Do you think dogs talk, she asked. If they did, one of them would be president by now. Everyone likes dogs. Horses talk, only on television. I'm going to get a puppy that talks. If anyone can, you will, Barty said. Agnes invited everyone to stay for dinner. The pies were no sooner finished than large cookpots, saucepans, colanders, and other heavy artillery were requisitioned from the Lampian Culinary Arsenal. Maria's coming by with Francesca and Benita, Agnes said. We might as well put all the extensions on the table. Barty, call Uncle Jacob and Uncle Edom and invite them for dinner. Paul watched as Barty hopped down from his chair and crossed the busy kitchen in a straight line to the wall phone without one hesitant move. Angel followed him and observed as he climbed a step stool and unhooked the telephone handset. He dialed with little pause between digits and spoke with each of his uncle's. From the phone, Barty proceeded directly to the refrigerator. He opened the door, got a can of orange soda, and returned without hesitation to his place at the table. Angel followed him at two steps, and when she stood beside his chair, watching him open the soft drink, Barty said, Why were you following me? How did you know I was? I know. To Paul, he said, She did, didn't she? Everywhere you went, Paul confirmed. Angel said, I want to see you fall down. I don't fall. Well, not much. Maria Gonzalez arrived with her daughters, and while it was natural for Angel to be drawn to the company of older girls, she had no interest in anyone but Barty. Why Patches? Cause I don't have my new eyes yet. Where do you get the new eyes? The supermarket. Don't you tease me, Angel said. You're not one of them. One of who? Thrown-ups. It's okay if they do it, but if you do it, it'll just be mean. All right. I get my new eyes from a doctor. They're not real eyes, Just, just plastic to fill in where my eyes used to be. Why? To support my eyelids. And because without anything in the sockets, I look gross. People barf, old ladies pass out, and little girls like you pee their pants and run screaming. Show me, Angel said. Did you bring clean pants? You afraid to show me? The patches were held by the same two elastic strips, so Barty flipped up both at the same time. Ferocious pirates, ruthless secret agents, brain eating aliens from distant galaxies, super criminals hell bent on ruling the world, bloodthirsty vampires, face gnawing werewolves, savage Gestapo thugs, mad scientists, satanic cultists, insane carnival freaks, hate crazed Ku Klux Klansmen. Knife-worshipping thrill killers, and emotionless robot soldiers from other planets that slashed, stabbed, burned, shot, gouged, torn, clubbed, crushed, stomped, hanged, bitten, eviscerated, beheaded, poisoned, drowned, radiated, blown up, mangled, mutilated, and tortured uncounted victims in the pulp magazines that Paul had been reading since childhood. Yet not one scene in those hundreds upon hundreds of issues of colorful tales withered a corner of his soul as did a glimpse of Barty's empty sockets. The sight wasn't in the least gory, or even gruesome. Paul cringed and looked away only because this evidence of the boy's loss too pointedly made him think about the terrible vulnerability of the innocence in the freight train path of nature, and threatened to tear out the fragile scab on the anguish that he still felt over Perry's death. Instead of staring at Barty directly, he watched Angel as she studied the eyeless boy. She had exhibited no horror at the concave slackness of his closed lids. And when one lid fluttered up to reveal the dark, hollow socket, she hadn't shown any revulsion. Now she moved closer to Barty's chair, and when she touched his cheek, just below his missing left eye, the boy didn't flinch in surprise. Were you scared? She asked. Plenty. Did it hurt? Not much. Are you scared now? Mostly not. But sometimes? Sometimes. Paul realized the kitchen had fallen silent, that the women had turned to the two children and now stood as motionless as figures in a waxwork tableau. You remember things? The girl asked, her fingertips still pressed lightly to his cheek. You mean how they look? Yeah. Sure, I remember. It's only been 15 days. Will you forget? I'm not sure. Maybe. Maybe. Celestina, standing next to Agnes, put an arm round her waist, as perhaps she had once been in the habit of doing with her sister. Angel moved her hand to Barty's right eye, and again he didn't twitch with surprise when her fingers lightly touched his clothes and sagging lid. I won't let you forget. How does that work? I can see, she said, and I can talk like your book talks. For sure, you can talk, Barty agreed. So what I am is I'm you talking eyes. Lowering her hand from his face, Angel said, Do you know where bacon comes from? Pigs. How's something so delicious come from a fat, smelly, dirty, snorting old pig? Barty shrugged. A bright yellow lemon sure looks sweet. So you say pig, Angel asked. What else? You still say pig? Yeah, Bacon comes from pigs. That's what I think. Can I have an orange soda? I'll get one for you, he said. I saw where it was. She got a can of soda, returned to the table, and sat down as if finished with her explorations. You're okay, Barty. You too. Edom and Jacob arrived. Dinner was served. And while the food was wonderful, the conversation was better. Even though the twins occasionally shared their vast knowledge of train wrecks and deadly volcanic eruptions. Paul didn't contribute much to the talk, because he preferred to bask in it. If he hadn't known any of these people, if he had walked into the room while they were in the middle of dinner, he would have thought they were family, because of the warmth and intimacy, and in the twins' case, the eccentricity of the conversation were not what he expected of such newly made friends. There was no pretense, no falsity, and no avoidance of any awkward subject, which meant there were sometimes tears. Because the death of Reverend White was such a fresh wound in the hearts of those who loved him. But in the healing ways of women that remained mysterious to Paul even as he watched them do their work, tears were followed by reminiscences that brought a smile and soothed. And hope was always found to be the flower that bloomed from every seed of hopelessness. When Agnes was surprised to discover that Barty's name had been inspired by the Reverend's famous sermon, Paul was startled. He had heard this momentous day on his first broadcast, and learning that it would be rerun three weeks later by popular demand, he had urged Joey to listen. Joey had heard it on Sunday, the 2nd of January, 1965, just four days before the birth of his son. He must have listened on the car radio, Agnes said, digging down into the layered days of her packed trunk of memories. He was trying to get ahead of his work so he'd be able to stay around the house a lot during the week after the baby came. So he arranged to me with some prospective clients, even on Sunday. He was working a lot, and I was trying to deliver my pies and meet my other obligations before the big day. We didn't have as much time together as usual, and even as impressed as he must have been with the sermon, he never had a chance to tell me about it. The next to last thing he ever said to me was, Bartholomew. He wanted me to name the baby Bartholomew. This bond between the Lampian and white families, which Grace had already heard about from Paul, came as news to Celestina as much as to Agnes. It inspired more reminiscence of lost husbands and a wistful wish that Joey and Harrison could have met. I wish my Rico could have met your Harrison too, Maria told Grace, referring to the husband who had abandoned her. Maybe the Reverend could have done with words what I couldn't do with my foot in Rico's tricero, Barty said. That's Spanish for ass. Angel found this hysterical, and Agnes said long-sufferingly, "'Thank you for the language lesson, Master Lampion.'" What didn't come as a surprise to Paul was Agnes' determination that the Whites, during their period of lying low, should stay with her and Barty. "'Paul,' she said, you got a lovely house but Celestina and Grace are doers. They need to keep occupied. They'll go stir-crazy if they don't stay busy. Am I right, ladies?' They agreed, but insisted that they didn't want to impose. Nonsense, Agnes breezed on. It's no imposition. You'll be a great help with my baking, the pie deliveries, all the work that I put aside during Barty's surgery and recovery. It'll either be fun or I'll wear you down to the bone, but either way, you won't be bored. I've got two extra rooms, one for Sally and Angel and one for Grace. When your Wally arrives, we can move Angel in with Grace or she could bunk with me. The friendship, the work, and least of all the sense of home and belonging that everyone felt within minutes of crossing Agnes's threshold, these things appealed to Celestina and Grace. But they didn't want Paul to feel that his hospitality was unappreciated. He raised one hand to halt the genteel debate. The whole reason I stopped here first before taking you folks on to my place is so I wouldn't have to bring your suitcases back after Agnes won you over. This is where you'll be happiest. Though you're always welcome if she tries to work you to death. Throughout the evening, Barty and Angel, sitting side by side and across the table from Paul, listened to the adults at times and occasionally joined the larger conversation. But primarily, they talked between themselves. When the kids' heads weren't together conspiratorially, Paul could hear their chatter. And depending on what else was being discussed around the table, he sometimes tuned into it. He picked up on the word rhinoceros. Tuned in, tuned out, but a couple minutes later, he dialed back in when he realized that Celestina, sitting two places farther along the table than him, had risen from her chair and was staring in amazement at the kids. So where he threw the quarter, Barty said, as Angel listened intently and nodded her head, wasn't really in a gun smoke, because that's not a place, it's just a show. See, maybe he threw it into a place where I'm not blind, or into a place where he doesn't have that messed up face, or a place where for some reason you never came here today. There's more places than anyone could ever count, even me, and I can count pretty good. That's what you feel, right? All the way things are? I see. Sometimes, just quick, like for a blink, like when you stand between two mirrors, you know? Yeah, Barty said. Between two mirrors, you go on forever, over and over. You see things like that? For a blink... Sometimes. Is there a place where Wally didn't get shot? Is Wally the guy who's gonna be your dad? Yeah, that's him. Sure, there's lots of places where he didn't get shot, but there's places where he got shot and died too. I don't like those places. Although Paul had seen Tom Vanadium's clever coin trick, he didn't understand the rest of their conversation, and he assumed that for everyone else, except Angel's mother, it was equally impenetrable. But taking their cue from the risen Celestina, all those present had fallen silent. Oblivious that she and Barty had become the center of attention, Angel said, Does he ever get the quarters back? Probably not. He must be really rich, throwing away quarters. A quarter's not much money. It's a lot, Angel insisted. Wally gave me an Oreo last time I saw him. Do you like Oreos? They're okay. Could you throw an Oreo someplace you weren't blind or maybe somewhere Wally wasn't shot? I guess if you could throw a quarter, you could throw an Oreo. Could you throw a pig? Maybe he could if he were able to lift it. But I couldn't throw a pig or an Oreo or anything else in any other place. It's it's just not something I know how to do. Me neither. But I could walk in the rain and not get wet, Barty said. At the far end of the table, Agnes shot up from her chair as her son said rain, and as he said wet, she spoke warningly, Barty! Angel looked up, surprised everyone was staring at her. Turning his patched eyes in the general direction of his mother, Barty said, Oops. Everyone confronted Agnes with expressions of puzzlement and expectation, and she looked from one to another Paul, Maria, Francesca, Benita, Grace, Edom, Jacob, finally Celestina. The two women stared at each other. And at last, Celestina said, Good Lord, what's happening here? Do you hear the glee in my voice? Like me, this is me personally. Do you hear the glee in my voice? I have been waiting 78 chapters for y'all to get to that point. And it gets better. As good as this book is, it gets better. Oh my God, I love this book so much. I felt this same way about The Princess Bride. If you haven't listened to that yet, please do. That is unbridled glee. And it's so few and far between that you get to feel unbridled glee. But I feel it every time I read one of my favorite books and I get to a moment. I hope y'all enjoyed that moment. Chapter 79. On the following Tuesday afternoon in Bright Beach, across the sky as black as a witch's cauldron, seagulls flew out of an evil brew towards their safe roost. And on the land below, humid shadows of the pending storm gathered as if called forth by a curse cooked up from the eye of a newt, toe of a frog, wool a bat, and tongue of a dog. By air from San Francisco south to Orange County Airport, then farther along the coast by rental car. One week in the wake of Paul Damascus and his three charges... Following directions provided by Paul, Tom Vanadian brought Willie Lipscomb to the Lampion House. Eleven days have passed since Wally stopped three bullets. He still had a little residual weakness in his arms, grew tired more easily than before he wound up on the wrong end of a pistol, complained of stiffness in his muscles, and used a cane to keep his full weight off his wounded leg. The rest of the medical care he required, as well as physical rehabilitation, could be had in Bright Beach as well as in San Francisco. By March, he should be back to normal, assuming that the definition of normal included massive scars and an internal hollow space where his spleen had been. Celestina met them at the front door and flung her arms around Wally. He let go of his cane, Tom caught it, and returned her embrace with such ardor... Kissed her so hard, that evidently residual weakness was no longer a problem. Tom received a fierce hug too, and a sisterly kiss, and he was grateful for them. He had been a loner for too long, as a hunter of men pretty much had to be when on a long, hard road of recuperation, and then on a mission of vengeance, even if he called it a mission of justice. During the few days he had spent guarding Celestina and Grace and Angel in the city, and subsequently during the week with Wally, Tom had felt that he was part of a family even if it was just a family of friends, and he had been surprised to realize how much he needed that feeling. Everyone's waiting, Celestina said. Tom was aware that something had happened here during the past week, an important development that Celestina mentioned on the phone, but that she declined to discuss. He didn't harbor any expectations of what he'd find when she escorted him and Wally into the Lampian dining room. But if he tried to imagine the scene awaiting him, he wouldn't have pictured a seance. A seance is what it appeared to be at first. Eight people were gathered around the dining room table, which stood utterly bare. No food, no drinks, no centerpiece. They all exhibited that shiny-faced look of people nervously awaiting the revelations of a spirit medium. Part trepidation, part soaring hope. Tom knew only three of the eight, Grace White, Angel, and Paul Damascus. The others were introduced quickly by Celestina. Agnes Lampion, their hostess. Edom and Jacob Isaacson, brothers to Agnes. Maria Gonzalez, best friend to Agnes. And Barty. By telephone, he had been prepared for this boy. Strange as it was to find a Bartholomew in their lives, given Enoch Kane's peculiar obsession, Tom nonetheless agreed with Celestina that the wife killer could have no way to know about this child and could certainly have no logical reason to fear him. The only thing they had in common was Harrison White's sermon, which had inspired this boy's name and might have planted the seed of guilt in Kane's mind. Tom, Wally, I'm sorry for the brusque introductions. Agnes Lampion apologized. We'll have plenty of getting to know each other time over dinner. But the people in this room have been waiting for an entire week to hear from you, Tom. We can't wait a moment longer. Hear from me? Celestina indicated to Tom that he should sit at the head of the table, facing Agnes at the foot. As Wally lowered himself into the empty chair to Tom's left, Celestina picked up two items from the sideboard and put them in front of Tom before sitting to his right, salt and pepper shakers. From the far end of the table, Agnes said, for starters, Tom, we all want to hear about the rhinoceros and the other you. He hesitated. Because until the limited explanations he had made to Celestina in San Francisco, he had never discussed his special perception with anyone except two priest counselors in the seminary. At first, he felt uneasy, talking of these matters to strangers, as if he were making the confession to laity, who held no authority to provide absolution. But as he spoke to this hushed and intense gathering, his doubts fell away, and revelation seemed as natural as talk of the weather. With the salt and pepper shakers, Tom walked them through the why I'm not sad about my fate's explanation that he had given the angel ten days previously. At the end, with the salt Tom and the pepper Tom standing side by side in their different but parallel worlds, Maria said, seems like science fiction. Science. Quantum mechanics. Which is a theory of, of physics. But by theory... I don't mean just wild speculation. Quantum mechanics works. It underlies the invention of television. Before the end of this century, perhaps even by the 80s, quantum-based technology will give us powerful and cheap computers in our homes. Computers as small as briefcases, as small as a wallet, a wristwatch that could do more and far faster data processing than any of the giant lumbering computers we know today. Computers as tiny as a postage stamp. We'll have wireless telephones you can carry everywhere. Eventually, it'll be possible to construct single molecule computers of enormous power. And then technology, in fact, all human society, will change almost beyond comprehension. And for the better. He surveyed his audience for disbelief and glazed eyes. Don't worry, Celestina told him. After what we've seen this past week, we're still with you. Even Barty seemed to be attentive, but Angel happily applied crayons to a coloring book and hummed softly to herself. Tom believed that the girl had an intuitive understanding of the true complexity of the world, but she was only three after all, and neither ready nor able to absorb the scientific theory that supported her intuition. Alright, well, Jesuits are encouraged to pursue education in any subject that interests them, not theology alone. I was deeply interested in physics." -"Because of a certain awareness you've had since childhood," Celestina said, recalling what he had told her in San Francisco. -"Yes. More about that later. Let me make it clear that an interest in physics doesn't make me a physicist. Even if I were, I couldn't explain quantum mechanics in an hour or a year. Some say quantum theory is so weird that no one can fully understand all its implications." Some things proven in quantum experiments seem to defy common sense, and I'll lay out a few for you, just to give you the flavor. First, on the subatomic level, effects sometimes come before cause. In other words, an event can happen before the reason for it ever occurs. Equally odd, in an experiment with a human observer, subatomic particles behave differently from the way that they behave when the experiment is unobserved while in progress and the results are examined only after the fact, which might suggest a human will, even subconsciously expressed, shapes reality. He was simplifying and combining concepts, but he knew no other way to quickly give them a feel for the wonder, the enigma, the sheer spookiness of the world revealed by quantum mechanics. And how about this, he continued, every point in the universe is directly connected to every other point, regardless of distance, So any point on Mars is, in some mysterious way, as close to me as is any of you. Which means it's possible for information and objects, even people, to move instantly between here and London without wires or microwave transmission. In fact, between here and a distant star, instantly. We just haven't figured out how to make it happen. Indeed, on a deep structural level, every point in the universe is the same point this interconnectedness is so complete that a great flock of birds taking flight in Tokyo, disturbing the air with their wings, contributes to weather changes in Chicago. Angel looked up from her coloring book. What about pigs? What about them? Tom asked. Can you throw a pig where you made the quarter go? I'll get to that, he promised. Wow, she said. He doesn't mean he'll throw a pig, Barty told her. He will, I bet, said Angel, returning to her crayons. One of the fundamental things suggested by quantum mechanics, Tom proceeded, is that an infinite number of realities exist, other worlds parallel to ours, which we can't see. For example, worlds in which, because of the specific decisions and actions of certain people on both sides, Germany won the last great war, and other worlds in which the Union lost the civil war, in worlds in which a nuclear war has already been fought between the U.S. and Soviets. Worlds, ventured Jacob, in which that oil tank truck never stopped on the railroad tracks in Bakersfield back in 60, so the train never crashed into it and those 17 people never died. This comment left Tom nonplussed. He could only imagine that Jacob had known someone who died in that crash. Yet the twin's tone of voice and his expression seemed to suggest that a world without the Bakersfield train wreck would be a less convivial place than the world that included it. Without commenting, Tom continued, "And worlds just like ours, except that my parents never met and I was never born. Worlds in which Wally was never shot because he was too unsure of himself or just too stupid to take Celestina to dinner that night or to ask her to marry him. By now, all here assembled knew Celestina well enough that Tom's final example raised an affectionate laugh from the group. Even in an infinite number of worlds, Wally objected, there's no place I was that stupid. Tom said, now I'm going to add a human touch and a spiritual spin to all of this. When each of us comes to a point where he has to make a significant moral decision affecting the development of his character and the lives of others, and each time he makes a less wise choice... That's where I myself believe a new world splits off. When I'm an immoral or just a foolish choice, another world is created in which I did the right thing. And in that world, I am redeemed for a while, given a chance to become a better version of the Tom Vanadium who lives on in the other world of the wrong choice. There are so many worlds with imperfect Tom Vanadiums, but always someplace. Someplace, I'm moving steadily towards a state of grace. Each life, Barty Lampion said, is like our oak tree in the backyard, but lots bigger. One trunk to start with, and then all the branches. Millions of branches, and every branch is the same life going in a new direction. Surprise, Tom leaned in his chair to look more directly at the blind boy. On the telephone, Celestina had mentioned only that Barty was a prodigy, which didn't quite explain the aptness of the oak tree metaphor. And maybe, said Agnes, caught up in the speculation, when your life comes to an end in all those many branches, what you're finally judged on is the shape and the beauty of the tree. Making too many wrong choices, Grace White said, produces too many branches, a gnarled, twisted, ugly growth. Too few, said Maria, might mean you made an admirably small number of moral mistakes, but also that you failed to take reasonable risks and didn't make full use of the gift of life. "'Ouch,' said Edom, and this earned him loving smiles from Maria, Agnes, and Barty. Tom didn't understand Edom's comment or the smiles that it drew, but otherwise, he was impressed by the ease with which these people absorbed what he had said, and by the imagination with which they had begun to expand upon the speculation. It was almost as though they had long known the shape of what he had told them, and that he was only filling in a few confirming details. "'Tom?' A couple minutes ago, Agnes said, Celestina mentioned your certain awareness. Which is what exactly? From childhood, I've had this awareness, this perception of an infinitely more complex reality than what my five basic senses reveal. A psychic claims to predict the future. I'm not a psychic. Whatever I am, I'm able to feel a lot of the other possibilities inherent in any situation. To know they exist simultaneously with my reality, side by side, each world is real as mine, in my bones, in my blood. You feel all the way things are, said Barty. Tom looked at Celestina. Prodigy, huh? Smiling, she said, gonna be especially momentous this day. Yes, Barty, Tom said. I feel adept to life. Layers beyond layers. Sometimes it's scary. Mostly it inspires me. I can't see these other worlds. Can't move between them. But with this quarter, I can prove that what I feel is my imagination. He extracted a quarter from a jacket pocket, holding it between thumb and forefinger for all but Barty to see. Angel? The girl looked up from her coloring book. Tom said, Do you like cheese? Fish is brain food, but cheese tastes better. Have you ever eaten Swiss cheese? Velveeta's best. What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of Swiss cheese? Cuckoo clocks. What else? Sandwiches. What else? Velveeta. Barty, Tom said. Help me here. Holes, Barty said. Oh, yeah. Holes, Angel agreed. Forget Barty Street for a second and imagine that all these many worlds are stacked slices of Swiss cheese. Through some holes, you can only see the next slice. Through others, you see through two or three or five slices before holes start overlapping. There are little holes between stacked worlds too, but they're constantly shifting, changing, second by second. And I can't see them really, but I have an uncanny feel for them. Watch closely. This time, he didn't flip the quarter straight into the air. He tipped his hand, and with his thumb, he shot the coin towards Agnes. At the midpoint of the table, directly under the chandelier, the flashing silvery disc turned through the air, turned, turned, turned out of this world into another. A few gasps and exclamations, a sweet giggle and applause from Angel. The reactions were surprisingly mild. Usually, I throw out a bunch of hocus-pocus, flourishes, and patter to distract people, so they don't even realize what they seen was real. They think the mid-air disappearance is just a trick. Everyone regarded him expectantly, as if there would be more magic, as if flipping a coin into another reality was something you saw every week or two on the Ed Sullivan Show, between the acrobats and jugglers who could balance ten spinning plates on ten tall sticks simultaneously. Well... Tom said. Those people who think it's just a trick generally react bigger than you folks. And you know it's real. What else can you do? Maria asked, further astonishing him. Abruptly, without a cannonade of thunder, without artillery strikes of lightning, the storm broke. As loud as marching armies, rain tramped across the roof. As one, those around the table raised their eyes to the ceiling and smiled at the sound of the downpour. Barty, with patches over his empty sockets, also looked up with a smile. Perplexed by her peculiar behavior, even slightly unnerved, Tom answered Maria's question. I'm afraid there's nothing else I can do. Nothing more of a fantastic nature. You did just fine, Tom, just fine, Agnes said in a consoling tone that she might have used with a boy whose performance at a piano recital had been earnest but undistinguished. We were all quite impressed. She pushed her chair back from the table and got to her feet, and everyone followed her example. Rising, Celestina said to Tom, last Tuesday night, we had to switch on the lawn sprinklers. This will be much better. Looking toward the nearest window, where the wet night kissed the glass, he said, Lawn sprinklers? The expectation with which Tom had been greeted on his arrival was as thin as the air at Himalayan Heights compared to the rich stew of anticipation now a Boyle. Holding hands, Barty and Angel led the adults into the kitchen, to the back door. This procession had a ceremonial quality that intrigued Tom, and by the time they stepped onto the porch, he was impatient to know why everyone, except he and Wally, were emotionally airborne, one degree of altitude below euphoria. When all were gathered on the porch, lined up across the head of the steps and along the railing, in chill, damp air to smell faintly of ozone and less faintly of jasmine, Barty said, Mr. Vanadium, your quarter trick is really cool, but here's something out of Heinlein. Sliding one hand lightly along the railing, the boy quickly descended the short flight of steps and walked onto the soggy lawn, into the rain. His mother, gently pushing Tom to the prime viewpoint at the head of the stairs, seemed unconcerned about her child's venture into the storm. Impressed by the sureness and swiftness with which the blind boy negotiated the steps and set off across the lawn, Tom didn't initially notice anything unusual about his stroll through the deluge. The porch light wasn't on. No landscape lighting brightened the backyard. Barty was a gray shadow moving through darkness and through the darkening drizzle. Beside Tom, Edom said, Hard rain. Sure is. August 1931, along the Huanghe River in China, 3,700,000 people died in the great flood, Edom said. Tom didn't know what to make of this information, so he said, That's a lot. Barty walked in a ruler straight line from the porch towards a great oak. September 13th, 1928. Lake Okeechobee, Florida. 2,000 people died in the flood. Not so bad, 2,000. Tom heard himself say idiotically. I mean, compared to nearly 4 million. About 10 feet from the trunk of the oak, Barty departed his straight route and began to circle the tree. After just 21 days, the boy's adaptation to blindness was amazing, but clearly the gathered audience stood in anticipation of something more remarkable than his unhalting progress and unerring sense of direction. September 27, 1962, Barcelona, Spain. A flood killed 445 people. Tom would have edged was right, away from Edom, if Jacob hadn't flanked him. He remembered the odd comment that the more dour of the twins had made about the Bakersfield train wreck. The enormous canopy of the oak didn't shelter the lawn beneath it. The leaves spooned the rain from the air, measuring it by the ounce, releasing it in thick drizzles instead of drop by drop. Barty rounded the tree and returned to the porch. He climbed the steps and stood before Tom. In spite of the gloom, the boy's miraculous accomplishment was evident. His clothes and hair were dry, as though he had worn a coat and hood. Odd, dropping to one knee before Barty, Tom fingered the sleeve of the boy's shirt. I walked where the rain wasn't, Barty said. In fifty years, until Angel, Tom had found no other like himself, and now a second in a little more than a week. I can't do what you did. I can't do the quarter, Barty said. Maybe... We can teach each other. Maybe. In truth, Tom didn't believe that any of this could be learned even by one adept taking instruction from another adept. They were born with the same special perception, but each with different and strictly limited abilities to interact with the multiplicity of worlds that they could detect. He wasn't able to explain even to himself how he could send a coin or other small object elsewhere. It was just something he felt. And each time the coin vanished, the authenticity of the feeling was proved. He suspected that when Barty walked where the rain wasn't, the boy employed no conscious techniques. He simply decided to walk in a dry world while otherwise remaining in this wet one. And then he did. Woefully incomplete wizards, sorcerers with just a trick or two each. They had no secret tome of enchantments and spells to teach to an apprentice. Tom Vanadium rose to his feet and With one hand on Barty's shoulder, he surveyed the faces of those gathered on the porch. Most of these people were such new acquaintances that they were all but strangers to him. Nonetheless, for the first time since the early days in St. Anselmo's orphanage, he'd found a place where he belonged. This felt like home. Stepping forward, Agnes said, "'When Barty holds my hand and walks me through the rain, I get wet even while he stays dry. The same for all the rest of us here, except Angel.' Already, the girl had taken Barty's hand. The two kids descended from the porch into the rain. They didn't circle the oak, but stopped at the foot of the steps and turned to face the house. Now that Tom knew what to look for, the gloom couldn't conceal the incredible truth. They were in the rain. The solid, glassy, pounding, roaring rain. Each bit as much as Gene Kelly would have been when he danced and sang and capered along a storm-soaked city street in that movie. But whereas the actor had been saturated by the end of the number... These two children remained dry. Tom's eyes strained to resolve this paradox, even though he knew that all miracles defied resolution. OK, Munchkins, Celestina said, time for act two. Barty let go of the girl's hand, and although he remained dry, the storm at once found her where she had been hiding in the silver black folds of his curtains. Dressed entirely in a shade of pink that darkened the rouge when wet, Angel squealed and deserted Barty. Spotted shrieks splashed with false tears on her cheeks, with a darkly glimmering crowd and rain jewels in her hair. She raced up the steps as though she were a princess abandoned by her coachman and allowed herself to be scooped into her grandmother's arms. You'll catch pneumonia, Grace said disapprovingly. And what wonders can Angel perform, Tom asked Celestina. None that we've seen yet. Just as she's aware of all the way things are, Maria added, like you and Barty. As Barty climbed to the porch without benefit of the railing and held out his right hand, Paul Damascus said, Tom, we're wondering if Barty can extend to you the protection he gives an angel in the rain. Maybe he can, since the three of you share this this awareness, this insight, or whatever you want to call it, but he won't know until he tries. Tom joined hands with the boy, such a small hand, yet so firm in its determined grip but they didn't have to descend all the way to the lawn before they knew that the prodigy's invisible cloak wouldn't accommodate him as it did the girl. Cool, drenching rain pounded Tom at once, and he scooped Barty off the steps as Grace had gathered up Angel, returning to the porch with him. Agnes met them, pulling Grace and Angel to her side. Her eyes were bright with excitement. Tom, you're a man of faith, even if you've sometimes been troubled in it. Tell me what you make of all this. He knew what she made of it all right, and he could see that the others on the porch knew as well. And likewise, he could see that all of them wanted to hear him confirm the conclusion to which Agnes had arrived long before he had been there with Wally this evening. Even in the dining room, before the proof in the rain, Tom had recognized a special bond between the blind boy and this buoyant little girl. In fact, he couldn't have arrived at any conclusion different from the one Agnes reached, because like her... He believed that the events of every day revealed mysterious design if you were willing to see it. That every life had profound purpose. Of all the things I might be meant to do with my life, he told Agnes, I believe nothing will matter more than the small part I've had in bringing together these two children. Although the only light on the back porch came from the pale beams that filtered out through the curtains on the kitchen windows, all these faces seemed luminous, almost preternaturally aglow like the kiln finer countenances of saints in a dark church, lit solely by the flames of votive candles. The rain, a music of sorts, and the jasmine and incense in the moment sacred. Looking from one to another of his companions, Tom said, When I think of everything that had to happen to bring us here tonight, the tragedies as well as the happy turn of the fortune, when I think of the many ways things might have been, with all of us scattered and some of us having never met, I know we belong here, for we've arrived against all odds. His gaze traveled back to Agnes, and he gave her the answer that he knew she hoped to hear. This boy and this girl were born to meet, for reasons only time will reveal, and all of us were the instruments of some strange destiny. A sense of fellowship in extraordinary times drew everyone closer, to hug, to touch, to share the wonder. For a long moment, even in the symphony of the storm, in spite of all the plink-tink-hiss-plop-rattle that arose from every rain-beaten work of man and nature, they seemed to stand here in a hush as deep as Tom had ever heard. Then Angel said, Will you throw the pig now? 916-633-1537 Ratchet and Ratchet at gmail.com Ratchet Book Club on Twitter Ratchet Book Club on Facebook Leave a review on a... Uh, spotify takes 13 seconds you can also leave a review on Podchaser. uh you can leave a review on good pods and you can leave a review on apple Podcasts. there is a family for you i want you to know that even if you think that you're alone there's a family for you you just got to find it it's one of those situations where i've been pushed away from many many people for reasons that i don't want to go into but i hadn't found my family but there is one for you specifically where you don't have to change yourself to fit in. You don't have to be someone different. You don't have to feel like you um, are on the outside looking in. You don't have to feel any of that. All there is the comfort and a glow and a love and they just there for you. you you're going to find it. The beautiful thing about the Internet is that it allowed people to find their families through digital means. Like, your people are out there. And sometimes it's a good thing and sometimes it's a bad thing because a lot of these idiots that are out here causing chaos and terror in the world only found strength from their families that they found on the internet. But your family is out there. And they will accept you. No matter what. They will tell you when you're wrong because you have that comfort. And sometimes you'll get close To someone and you'll feel like you have that comfort in laughter and in communication and all that but then you will tell them the truth you'll tell them when they're messing up or when they've gone out of pocket or whatever and you'll find that that's not it but you'll find your family and when you do it'll be the most honest fulfilling enlightening experience that you'll know yeah Thank y'all so much for listening. I greatly appreciate it. Y'all be good. I'm going to holler at you later. Peace. outro to Ratchet Book Club is by That Kid Garan and it's called Goodbyes. You can email him at tkgbeats94 at gmail.com for more information on how to lease this beat. This is Single Simulcast. Keep thy grubby hands out of my cookie jar!